As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden back on the campaign trail. He says, buy American. And Bob Woodward's new book, Jump Starts, really shakes up the 2020 campaign. We're going to give you all of that, plus some developments in terms of policy and an exclusive interview with Senator Marsha Blackburn. And we're going to talk about the humanities. Lots to get through. All-encompassing program. Bob Woodward, back in the news. The book is called Rage, and he's got the audio tapes from a series of interviews that he conducted with President Trump at the end of last year, all throughout the early parts of the pandemic. The the quote in question, I want to play it for you now, and we have it, and our executive producer, Christine Barada, just put the verbatim, as it's called, in the chat. The quote in question is about him saying why he wanted to downplay the coronavirus pandemic. He said, I always wanted to play it down. Let's roll the tape of President Trump and what he told Bob Woodward. fact is, I'm a cheerleader for this country. I love our country. And I don't want people to be frightened. I don't want to create panic, as you say. And uh, certainly, I'm not going to uh, drive uh, this country or the world into a frenzy. We want to show confidence. We want to show strength. We want to show strength as a nation. And that's what I've done. And we've done very well. And that was President Trump speaking earlier today at a press conference about these audio tapes from his conversations over a series of interviews with Bob Woodward. Here to dissect all of this information is the Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief, Craig Gordon. Craig, welcome back to the program. And, you know, how will this impact the 2020 race? Uh, Look, I think for a lot of people who have had questions about Donald Trump's handling of coronavirus and the polls show a majority of Americans don't think he did a very good job, this really does sort of bolster the case that Trump all along, the phone call in question dates back to February 7th, there was another call in March where where Trump, you know, reportedly, and we, you know, there are audio tapes of this, tell Bob Woodward that he he knew the virus was very serious. He says, you know, you can spread it through the air. That's that's so hard to that's so hard to fight. 
But when he stood at the White House podium day after day, and we all remember watching those coronavirus briefings around that time, he made it sound like it's just like the flu. It'll go away in the summer heat. And, you know, we don't have to worry about it. And so I think for people who already have questions about how Trump handled that, that virus, this is just fresh evidence that he really was saying one thing in private and saying a very different thing in public uh, as he tried to downplay the seriousness of the disease. You know, and it is it is interesting because at the same time, in those tones back in the uh, in the early the, his tone rather uh, during those press conferences, now the reelection campaign is saying, well, he was he, he didn't want to cause a panic, he didn't want to have you know a massive panic. But early on, he was out front in terms of trying to get to some type of reopening of the economy. What else are we hearing from the defense from the president's reelection campaign? Yeah, I mean, look, and I think Trump, you know, the the thing about it is Trump is making an argument that is not completely sort of implausible, that, look, I can't stand up there and look panicky or look scared or look nervous. The American people are looking to me as a leader of the country to kind of portray a sense of calm, a sense of leadership, a sense that I've sort of, you know, I've got this under control. Uh, you know, these are tough times where we're going to get through it. I, I think the problem for Trump is his actions, you know, were different. If he were saying calming words but mobilizing, you know, the entire full weight of the U.S. You know, government to fight this virus and to put to, you know, put protections in place to order the equipment to send equipment around, people might say, okay, well, sure, you know, he has to portray a sense of calm, but he's also taking a lot of actions. He's doing a lot of things. The, the you know, mobilizing the entire government, the health, the health infrastructure, the military, whatever. He wasn't. He wasn't doing those things. He was both portraying calm and also not doing that much. And I think for a, a lot of voters, you know, they, they would understand a sense of, you know, if you think back in time to the great presidents, FDR, getting through the Depression, or even going all the way back to Lincoln in the Civil War. Obviously, they didn't want to look panicky, but there was also a sense they were doing something to fix the problem. And I think, again, if, if you believe the polls, a lot of people say they don't think he was doing enough to, to fix the problem. We're all living with coronavirus. I'm speaking to you from inside my basement in Lovely. Bethesda, Maryland. I haven't been in my office in six months. I mean, Not even very... Joe Biden's in his basement today, Craig. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> but this is a very real thing for people. They have a very visceral understanding of how the virus has affected everyone's daily life, and you know, maybe they know people that have gotten sick, God forbid, people maybe even that have died. So people have a very clear understanding of how they think the president handled this, and they don't think he did a very good job. So there's one thing to portray calm. There's another thing to take action. I think a lot of voters, again, if you believe the polls, think he didn't do enough. And this is just a fresh reminder that uh, even though he himself knew it was serious, he wasn't he wasn't taking the steps that, you know, looking back, maybe he should have been. Craig Gordon's on the line. He's the uh, Washington bureau chief for Bloomberg News. And the timeline, this is just what I find fascinating, is that he gave these interviews with Woodward in January, February and March. And the president said publicly in February and in early March, and this is important, folks, in February and early March that the U.S. had the virus under control. Well, the other timeline is the geopolitical timeline with the World Health Organization traveling to Beijing upon an insistent meeting with the president of China, Xi Jinping, at the end of January when when they finally declared their highest health rating of a global health emergency with the coronavirus. Now, the president had restricted travel actually before then, but the timeline here is that even while he took his most aggressive stances, to Craig Gordon's point, his tone 
was just so remarkably different than what his national security advisor, as Bob Woodward reports in his book, Robert O'Brien says in a January 28th meeting. And this is where that timeline is remarkable, because while the WHO was meeting with President Xi, O'Brien's talking to Trump. And he's saying that this quote will be the biggest national security threat you face in your presidency, end quote. And Craig, based upon Woodward's reporting, do you think the president responded uh, in a way that he should have based upon O'Brien's advice? Well, if you were, you know, the, the excerpt from the book that the Washington Post published says that, you know, Trump did look up and, and that, you know, those words, I, I could only imagine O'Brien was trying to get his attention and succeeded in getting his attention. I think what a lot of voters would say is, okay, so fine. The, the National Security Advisor did his job. He got the president's attention. The president's a busy person. He's got a lot of things going on. He kind of cut through some of the noise and said, Mr. President, you need to focus on this. I think a lot of voters would say, but what did he actually do about it? It was, as you say, it was weeks, if not months until he started taking some of the more aggressive steps while all the while praising G's handling of it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, sort of, again, downplaying, downplaying the nature of it. So, you know, presidents get judged on their action, their words and their actions. And I think in this case, Trump is saying, look at my words. I was trying to project calm and leadership, and I think voters will be looking at his actions and remembering at that time, Think back, put yourself back to that time, January, February. We were still working in our office in downtown Washington, and people were sort of going about their lives with this sense something was bad was coming, but the president kept saying it was okay, and so everyone, you know, like nobody knew what to make of it. That's a moment when the president needs to be the, the, the way to be the leader. I think a lot of people would say is you are honest with the American people. Uh, Bloomberg's Mario Parker was sitting in that briefing room and, you know, frankly asked, I think, a very pointed question. He said, sir, don't you think if you had been honest with the American people, you know, back in, say, March, you might have saved some lives because people would have taken it more seriously than you are suggesting that they should. I actually think that's fundamentally the question that Joe Biden should ask Donald Trump on the debate stage when they debate at the end of the month in Cleveland. And, you know, I think a lot of voters are going to judge Trump's answer uh, harshly when he gives it. We're going to have much more coming up on this Bob Woodward book, Rage, the audio of which has really rocked Washington and the 2020 race. My thanks, as always, to Craig Gordon, Bloomberg's Washington bureau chief. And right now we're going to switch gears entirely and we're going to talk we're going to take we're going to talk we're going to take a historical perspective rather and we're going to do it with someone who rarely gives interviews he's an apolitical type he served in both republican and democratic administrations and his name is John Parrish Petey. he is the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities you know when i i i was thinking about this segment folks i was thinking about when i first cut my teeth as a journalist and uh, i covered the fall of the Joe Paterno statue in State College, Pennsylvania, which had become a symbol for a horrible uh, trial and uh, but it, uh, with uh, Jerry Sandusky. And the reason I bring this up is because it was really then when I learned just how powerful, powerful statues can become in our culture and symbols. And here we are living through these unprecedented times, to use a neutral word, and it Every statue is being is driving headlines and how we remember history and how we put America's founding and America in in a historical context is being openly discussed in sometimes productive ways and other times unproductive ways. And Chairman Petey is really in charge of orchestrating how this gets how this ushering of American history 
gets remembered. And so at first, I, tell me a little bit, uh, Chairman Petey, just a little bit about your day-to-day job for folks who might not be familiar with the chairman uh, of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Kevin, thank you for having me on. First, I think um, for a lot of people, it's important to describe what the humanities are. So essentially, the humanities are the study of society, of culture. So in college, of course, I've had history, English, philosophy, religion, law, art, history. And so the federal grant, uh, the federal grants from my agency, the National Endowment for the Humanities, on museums, libraries, and universities. And so a great deal of my day is looking at, across a year, some 5,000 applications and to think about the seven or 800 that we want to support, the academic books we want to support, the scholars, uh, the curators who restored the Star Spangled Banner flag. We helped educate them. So I'm spending most of my days thinking about what should we be doing now to remember our past and uh, develop a cultural memory that understands our founders' value and also the importance and value of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement and you everything know, between. And I think of, of the conversation, just culturally, that our country has had. You know, you think of Hamilton, you think of uh, Lincoln, that, that film Lincoln, and of course the, you know, uh, I'm reading 1776 right now, just rereading that. And and so many, so much of the conversation is about our past. And so how, sir, have has this particular moment of of uh, a division, uh, again, to use a neutral word, how has that impacted your work or has it at all? Well, it's certainly brought a national attention to the matters that we deal with every day here, which is which is history the telling of history without an ideological agenda and based on the facts. And uh, also an important new step is that my agency for more than half a century has been funding these type of projects. But now, as of July 3rd, we joined other federal agencies for President Trump's interagency task force on building and rebuilding monuments to American heroes. And then I'll say quickly for your listeners, we are we submitted a report to the president to propose potential sites for a national garden of statues of American heroes. And what has been very exciting is the governors and the 2000 county commissioners and supervisors that we have written and their ideas about local heroes, not just Abraham Lincoln and Rosa Parks, the national and international heroes we know, but frankly, some of these unsung heroes from American past. And it's it's really incredible, folks. I mean, regardless of, of who wins on November 3rd, I mean, this will be a massive, they haven't announced the site yet, but a massive national monument park, for lack of a better word, just to put it in perspective. How many acres? It's going to be several. We did propose in the report that 100 acres might be a good minimum uh, to look minimum. at. Uh, but but again, we've given this to the president. It depends on the typography. And I appreciate the way you're discussing that, uh, Kevin, because frankly, for those of us on the task force, from Interior Secretary David Bernhardt to others, we look at this as a great unifying civic endeavor. A nation should be proud of, it, of its past, and we should be able to talk about the men and women of all backgrounds, all races, all economic levels, 
who have transformed this country and have made a difference across the world, particularly a difference for freedom. You know, it's 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 so where where are some of the locations or what, what can you tell us? I mean, and just give us a, a, a little bit of a preview of the types of people that that are going to be recognized in this hundred acre. Wow. Hundred acre uh, National Park Monument historical site. Well, I'm going to have to disappoint you on not revealing <laughs> the sites we recommended to the president. So uh, so my apologies, but but we really want to let the president of the White House yeah. uh, contemplate those. Uh, I can say that we've had private land proposed to us. We have a lot of great public land because it's under the leadership of the Interior Secretary, who just had incredible leadership from the National Park Service, where they talked about existing parks and also some unused parts of existing parts that could be used for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So it's been very thoughtful. Can people get to it easily? Is it accessible uh, to all people of all walks of life, how the utilities and access? Mm -hmm. So it's a very thoughtful, prudent process. Uh, And the whole point of this, I should say, too, is it's tied to something else, uh, a word that a lot of us are going to have to learn how to pronounce. And Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for this (laughs) next word. Yeah, uh, the semi Wait, wait, say it again. July. Say it again. It bears repeating. Say it again. Yes, for everybody studied Latin, this is your chance to use it. Semi-quincentennial. Semi-quincentennial, or as we are going to call it, America 250, which is the 250th birthday of America is in 2026. We only have a couple more minutes, and I really want to get to this point, because from 2007 to 2011, in the Obama administration, uh, but at the tail end of the Bush administration, you oversaw the National Endowment for the Arts funding of literary organizations and fellowships, and you also led writing workshops. This is fascinating. You you led writing workshops for seven years for U.S. troops in Afghanistan, Bahrain, um, as well as the Persian Gulf, and on domestic basis. So when you're over there in Afghanistan, or you're in the Persian Gulf, and you're leading writing workshops, give us a memory. Give us a little taste of what that was like. Well, thank you. I worked with some 60 writers, a lot of veterans, the great novelist, Yashera, who everyone knows. We were in the Persian Gulf. And I tell you, I was in a field, I was in a hospital in Bahrain, Afghanistan, and I thought that I was teaching writing workshop for our wounded uh, troops that were patients there. And I was just talking to the doctors and nurses about what we were about to do with this writing workshop. And I saw them tear up. And I saw the the stress in their lives and their need to unpack their experience. And I saw that again at Walter Reed and a lot of domestic bases. And I think uh, what unites that project Operation Homecoming with what we're trying to do today is that this is a remarkable nation full of incredible people trying to do the right thing. And, And the patriotism and the sacrifice that I saw in our troops there uh, will be with me to the end of my days. And so uh, thank you for bringing it up. It, uh, the people, you know, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, uh, talking in a way that their grandfathers had never unlocked their stories from World War II. And for them, the bond in these workshops on the domestic basis uh, in Florida, I saw World War II veterans, PO, a POW in one case, talk to a troop who had recently come back uh, from Iraq, and that was profoundly moving. And the writing workshops we gave them 
we gave him examples of Civil War letters. Oh, we had wow. Shelby Foote reading these letters to them. Shelby Foote, the great historian, World War II veteran. And so I'm a big believer in the fact that we are united by knowing our nation's history. You know what? I needed that today. John Parrish, Petey, thank you, sir, for your time. And uh, I know we'll be talking uh, much more over the next couple of years. John Parrish, Petey, thank you for giving us an update on where things stand. And, of course, uh, wow, what a what a remarkable uh, story about your work in, in, in uh, getting folks to write about some very difficult moments of their life and using it as a uh, as testimony. John Parrish Petey, of course, is the chairman for the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, and he will like he will definitely be coming back on this program to talk more about that work. It's time now to switch gears as we are jumping through a dizzying news day. Just to reset here, my name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're following multiple fronts. Now let's focus on the markets. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, U.S. stocks rebounded from a three-day rout as dip buyers poured into beaten-down tech shares to send the Nasdaq 100 to its best day since April. The the dollar fell versus major peers, and the S&P 500 index rose the most since June, though finished well off its session highs. Taylor Riggs is a good friend of mine who always tells me I don't read the terminal enough, so I said, Taylor, come (laughs) on, Bloomberg Radio Sound On. She, of course, is a Bloomberg anchor and a Bloomberg markets reporter. All right, Taylor, educate me. What the heck happened in the markets today? Yeah, you know, really interesting day, Kevin. You just had the fastest correction in the last three days in the NASDAQ. And then today sort of seems like some of the buyers came back and you're seeing a little bit of a buy-the-dip opportunity. Though I would stress that every strategist I spoke to today said, of course, there's $5 trillion on the cash on the sidelines waiting to be invested anytime you get a pullback like this. But at the same time, Every strategist I speak to also says, prepare yourself for future volatility, that that is going to be the name of the game. And so you really could see a lot more days like this, big swings of 2 3%, really in the next few months as volatility expected to pick up. Really, of course, as you know, just the election um, and some of the uncertainty that comes around that. Taylor, what, what, are, what are investors really eyeing? Is it, is it the volatility around the election? It seems to be less and less fiscal stimulus. Is it vaccinations? I remember for a period of time, they were obsessed with all the latest news on the vaccination front. Mm-hmm. Of course, we got some new developments uh, after our trading hours yesterday. But what is really driving the movement here? Or is it is it just, or, you know, answer, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. I think for a while it was the fact that there wasn't stimulus, and we thought that stimulus was baked in, so everyone assumes that eventually it'll get done. Trade tensions are on the sidelines. I think the elections are top of mind um, for everyone, given that it's only two months away. And then, of course, with the vaccine news, um, it's baked in, I think, at this point, that we'll get a vaccine early 2021. So. Yeah. Exactly. And it looks like we're having a little bit of difficulty in hearing from Taylor Riggs, but what she just said there about the liquidity, such an incredibly, incredibly important point. Taylor, uh, I'll catch up with you later. Taylor's my running buddy. We always go running whenever, well, back back in the day when we could go running in New York City. Remember New York, Kev? I used to go to New York all the time. Uh, Taylor Riggs is a Bloomberg Markets reporter. Coming up, we reset. We follow the latest politics and policy. Roger Fisk is going to join us with Match Lap. I don't know how that's going to go. We'll find out together, folks. He is the chairman of the American Conservative Union, and Roger's a 
longtime Democratic strategist and a former aide to President Obama. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes uh, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Senator Marsha Blackburn's going to talk big tech with me. But first, you're almost there. We're halfway through the week. A little bit of a downcast day in the nation's capital. But here's Bruce Springsteen. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Bob Woodward's back and he's got the tapes. And listen, folks, it is upending the 2020 presidential race. We've got two uh, political all-stars who are going to be with me for the hour, Matt Schlapp, as well as Roger Fisk. And we're going to go through these tapes just to see what exactly it means for the 2020 race. And President Trump wants to talk about the Supreme Court. And I've got uh, the list of judges. Who, who would he nominate in a second term? Judicial Watch plus Senator Marsha Blackburn. We talk tech. We talk big tech. That's a lot to get through, but it's going to be a jam-packed political policy hour. Roger Fisk is with us for the hour, Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide, and a principal of New Day Strategy. And Matt Schlapp is also with us. He is the chairman of the American Conservative Union. You don't get much more of an insider than Roger Fisk and Matt Schlapp. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on what is a dizzying day. And we begin with Bob Woodward. The tapes. All right. So, folks, if you're just tuning in, what happened is President Trump agreed to a series of interviews, something like 18 interviews, what I would give 18 interviews with Bob Woodward ever since the end of last year, all throughout the early times of the pandemic. And he chronicled these conversations in the new book, Rage, by Bob Woodward. And essentially, well, I'm going to they leaked the tapes to CNN. The audio recordings. Now the audio is out there. And I want to play the soundbite in question, which was where he says, I wanted to always play it down. Let's roll the tape that was obtained first by CNN. Here it is. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you. Sure, I want you to I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes. Sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. He didn't want to create a panic. All right. So then today... At a press conference, he was asked about all of that because it's been that quote, I wanted to always play it down because I don't didn't want to create a panic, has really upended the dynamic of the 2020 race and the media and, and whatnot. So here's what the president said at a press conference earlier today. Here he is. fact is I'm a cheerleader for this country. I love our country. And I don't want people to be frightened. I don't want to create panic, as you say. And uh, certainly I'm not going to uh, drive uh, 
this country or the world into a frenzy. We want to show confidence. We want to show strength. We want to show strength as a nation. And that's what I've done. And we've done very well. All right. So there you have it. All right. So I'm going to let Matt speak and then Roger speak. And we're not going to do a shouting match. That's not this show. I want to know specifically whether or not this will change the dynamics of the race, whether or not the president should have been talking, Matt, to Bob Woodward 18 times uh, during that time period. Uh, and, And anything else that you want to comment on with regard to the Woodward book? Yeah, I don't have any issue. Thanks for having me on uh, again, Kevin. I don't have any issue with the president talking to Bob Woodward. Uh, I've been on TV with him a, a number of times. Um, you know, I, I don't. I, I have to say, I can't recall Bob Woodward actually releasing the tapes of past books with presidents and with principals. I think that's a little bit of a unique turn of events here. My guess is the president probably intended them to be used uh, to record the conversations for the book and not to become a CNN television show. But uh, I'll leave that aside. And as far as uh, what he how he characterized it, I I totally appreciate it and feel like that's the right way. You know, when uh, FDR sat before us on the radio and and said we had nothing to fear but fear itself and tried to assuage us and calm us as we faced, you know, what could have been the destruction of uh, Western civilization with fascism uh, coming out of Germany and this uh, totalitarianism coming out of the East. Uh, coming uh, out of Japan, and uh, obviously uh, the, the terrible historical scourge of concentration camps. You know, he didn't rally us to panic. And there's, there were a lot of times in that war, including right before D-Day, when Eisenhower, you know, wrote himself the note uh, of what he would tell the country if he failed in this mission. He actually wrote that out. You know, we were at the brink. But what a leader does is he takes us away from fear and panic and tries to encourage us to do something that's constructive. And what the president did on everything related to corona, although uh, people are loving to make everything about this politics, he basically did every major thing that Burks and Fauci and the other doctors asked him to do. And matter of fact, his most his boldest move, and I know that I had been talking to people in the administration at the time, was stopping this travel uh, from China, which he was roundly criticized for, and Joe Biden saying the president could have saved 30,000 more people if he had acted quicker. But of course, when he acted uh, before all, uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and others basically called him a racist for stopping that travel. So I think making the trying to turn every little aspect of this into politics uh, is a mistake on the Democrats' behalf. But I, I suppose that's the that's the strategy they're on. And as far as talking, the president had you know, daily press briefings. He's the most available to the press uh, president I've ever seen, uh, certainly in my lifetime. All right. So that's Matt. All right. So that's Matt. All right, Roger. Now, now your turn to, to go through the events of the, this afternoon. It's a slow news day. First off, I think we can all agree. Um, <laughs> and Kevin, busy. thank you uh, also for having me. And it's great to be here with, with Matt as well. Um, you know, there's a reason why two-thirds of the American people don't really trust a lot of what comes out of the president's mouth, and this is just more evidence thereof. I, You know, to me, a lot of this stuff, and I always kind of get back to these themes when you and I and some of the other guests chat about these things, it's not, it's not that difficult. Like, why couldn't the American people get what Bob Woodward got, which was the acknowledgement in February and March that it's an airborne pathogen? that it is also impacting oh, the youth. You. I mean, we don't, need, we don't need to go back into the rallies and the various talking points um, to see 
that, you know, the president was going in 180 degrees opposite from the facts. So, you know, this this to me, it's not necessarily surprising. I think what's almost what's almost more shocking is that he did 18 interviews and there's reports that his staff barely knew that he was doing any of them um, on the record. And I remember from the first Woodward book and some of the transcripts there, he always says right at the beginning, Mr. President, I'm going to tape our conversation. My assistant is on the line, you know, for, to get this accurately, et cetera. So the president knew completely what he was doing. And and it just it shows us, you know, kind of the, from the inside looking out what a lot of us ex- uh, suspected, you know, since about February uh, when he said mm-hmm. it's 15 people and it's soon going to be zero. So that he was not being straight with the American people. So that folks right there is are the dynamics. And I'm not going to spend too much more time on these Bob Woodward tapes because I think, you know, I want to get into policy. And coming up, we, we check in with Senator Marsha Blackburn on tech policy. But whether you were listening and your blood boiled with Roger or your blood boiled with Matt, it really isn't about you. It's about that person who's listening who doesn't know what to make of all of this. And I go back to four days in January, January 28th, when Bob Woodward says that the president was warned by National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien in a meeting that the virus will, quote, be the biggest national security threat you face in your presidency. That was on January 28th. On January 30th, virtually at the same time this was happening, the World Health Organization was traveling to Beijing to meet with President Xi Jinping, demanding more access that he had refused. January 30th was when the director general of the World Health Organization, so two days after this O'Brien meeting, declared the highest level of alarm uh, in that, that is available to the World Health Organization. We should note that it was then on January 31st that the president then restricted the travel so in the same 24-hour span so those four days in january were a defining moment in global history and how we remember that well it's going to be a generation and at least an election away coming up much more policy and politics with roger and matt i'm kevin cirilli you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 this is bloomberg sound on with kevin cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We can go to 25% of indoor dining with certain restrictions that will uh, be enacted on September 30th. That was uh, Cuomo, Cuomo, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that 25%, they still can't go into a restaurant in, uh, up there in New York City. But they're moving to 25% capacity. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Republican insider Matt Schlapp's with us. Hey, Matt, you been to any restaurants in the Big Apple lately? No, you know, I haven't even gone to the Big Apple. Uh, I don't even know if I want to go. I went by what is now renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza right in front of the White House, and I just felt sick um, about what's happening in these cities. I mean, all those... Places I used to frequent are boarded up. People are going out of business. Um, this shutdown has been incredibly harmful. And, you know, red states are open and uh, mostly blue cities are closed. And I think for those people in those cities who have more common sense, they realize um, they might not get it all back the way they had it before, especially with crime just going off the charts, especially murders. That's the saddest thing. It's not just crime. It's uh, so many murders and people of color who are dead on the streets because you know, cops feel on the defense. All right, Roger. Roger Fist, Democratic strategist, principal now at New Day. Roger, you going to go and get a chicken parm up in the Big Apple? 
I would love to. Um, when, when, when possible. I think the last time I actually went up was to do Fox, and then, and then we got booted by a White House press conference. So the whole trip was for nothing. Um, but no, this is this is tough. And you know what you see is kind of the pluralism, right? You, if if you're going to be guided by local rules and things like this, and there, then there's going to be different approaches. But what we've seen unfold domestically, and uh, like the Sturgis bike rally, which now is possibly the source of up to 200,000 cases. But then also I've been reading articles about a church service in Frankfurt, Germany, that 117 people walked out of there sick. So until we really know what what this means and, and how far the reach is and whether or not infected people can still get it once they have gotten better and whether or not they can still be carriers and the carrying capacity of children and things like that, we've played this fast and loose, and this has gotten us where we are. Far outpacing the world in terms of deaths. So I think, oddly enough, conservative approach to this is actually the smart way to go. All right. So, so Joe Biden was out in Michigan today, and he was talking about pretty much what we were just talking about—the economy and whatnot. And you know, I, I was struck by this, folks, because I'm a geopolitical nerd. I admit it. I'm a I, and and uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, who was very progressive was asked about whether or not he was going to reopen the if he had to reshut down the economy if he would do it and he actually said no and i read this and i thought well wait a minute that is, here's a guy who arguably is more liberal than biden and he's saying that he wouldn't shut down the economy again and then of course joe biden has said that that if the scientists said that that was something he wanted to do that he would do it so he was asked about the economy uh, or, or he didn't wasn't asked about it. He was he talked about it uh, while he was on the campaign trail in Michigan. Take a listen to Joe Biden, the front runner right now. Uh, what Joe Biden had to say about the economy, speaking in Michigan. Here he is. This is a recession created by Donald Trump's negligence, and he is unfit for this job as a consequence of it. So I, I want to go back to you, Roger, because unemployment eight point four percent. We've all been living through this devastating pandemic. When he says it's 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 the president's creating, I mean. What does he mean? Because it, it, I just I don't I don't think any voter is blaming the pandemic. Maybe the, the handling of it. That's one thing. But no one saw this pandemic coming. Well, I mean, there were certainly indications as far back as December. I've actually put together a tool that looks at the rates that different countries are going through. It's called TrumpBenghaziMeter.com, by the way. Um, but basically, if you, if you took the leadership of New Zealand or Germany um, or South Korea and just layered it onto the United States, the, like being clear with people, being honest with people, simple things like that, we would have had probably somewhere between thirty to 50,000 deaths rather than the you know, closing in on 200 now. So I don't think any responsible person is out there saying – you know, this is all due to the president's, you know, candor or lack thereof. But the fact that we are far outpacing the world in death. And I hear what, what Matt said earlier, because I love history, and you and I, Kevin, always end up speaking about it in one yeah, way or another, about FDR. This would basically be like, you know, George Bush didn't go in front of the American people and say, oh, there were structural issues with the Twin Towers. He said, you know, that we were attacked, and here's who did it, and here's what we're going to do. So, you know, being straight with people is not necessarily going to be a direct line to panic, 
but being honest at least arms the American people with information so that they can go out and make better decisions, which clearly the president was in a position to do in January and February and chose okay. not to. Okay, but Matt, come, on the economy, though, because, you know, specifically in terms of, of the economy, you know, Leader McConnell's talking a minimum of $500 billion in terms of stimulus. Speaker Pelosi's somewhere like three to four times that amount, upwards of a $2 trillion plus. Either way, this is a massive amount of liquidity that could be injected into the marketplace. But specifically, what I don't know yet is what a Biden administration would do on day one with regards to the economy. And and I don't know. I mean, it, 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 I just don't. I don't well, understand you know that. what they do. You know what they do. And I want to say, Kevin, I'm not going to argue too aggressively with your characterization of yourself as a political geek. I just want you to know that. But the, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's pretty obvious to me what they're going to do, because he's already said it in his socialist manifesto written by Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and the squad, of which, you know, when I love it when people say, well, he's moderate. I, I, I'd love to know one thing Biden was moderate on besides when he ran as a pro-lifer and within years changed his position on guns and abortion to the more extreme positions on the left. And he has said he is putting uh, into place all of these regulations that Obama put on the economy, which kept us from competing as aggressively with the world as we might have, had us shedding hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs. And he is basically doubling down on the Obama approach to the economy. Now, if everything goes well, we can have some tepid growth, but we're never going to get it back like we had with President Trump, because what President Trump, which which resulted in the lowest unemployment for African-Americans and women and Hispanics and all of these groups where people felt much more optimistic about their economic choices, what happened is that he pulled back from socialism. He pulled back from the idea that Washington has to be involved in every transaction and every single thing you want to do in your business or on your land. Uh, and what happened as a result is the economy boomed. And, you know, on this question of the virus, which I think is linked, um, yeah. there's no question that China leashed this on the world. So I agree, just like George Bush said, that yeah. the, the terrorists came after the towers. Uh, President Trump has been very clear that yeah. China unleashed this on the world, and we're having to deal with the consequences. And as far as every step he took, Tony Fauci said under oath. And front- All right, stay, hold that for what's on your radar. More coming up next. i got to cut it off right there for the break. This is Kevin Cerilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg uh, Radio. Our EP, Christine Barada, just told me that next week 
we're going to interview Dr. Mark Hyman. If you don't know who he is, Google him because he is uh, really driving a lot of the conversation about health and wellness and how uh, eating healthy can actually uh, help economies save or help local economies save money. I'm very excited to interview Dr. Mark Hyman next week, which is very timely given, you know, the whole pandemic. Uh, earlier today, I was on Capitol Hill. They let me out. I was on Capitol Hill and my colleague, Ben Brody, who covers all big tech things, three leading, he reported this yesterday, three leading Republican senators, one of whom is Senator Marsha Blackburn, have introduced new legislation that would attempt to prevent big tech companies from taking down conservative speech on their platforms, think Facebook. So earlier today, I talked about the legislation with Senator Blackburn, who co-chairs the Senate Judiciary Tech Task Force. Take a listen to our conversation. Senator Marsha Blackburn, you recently introduced legislation with your Republican colleagues that would really dramatically take a look at Section 230 and its impact on free speech with big tech companies. What would it do? Yes, and I have worked with Chairman Wicker at Commerce, Chairman Graham at Judiciary. Of course, I have a seat on each of those committees, and I have led the Tech Task Force Working Group at Judiciary Committee. And revisiting and dealing with Section 230 has been a priority. So we know that you're not going to have alternatives to these platforms until you deal with 230. We know there's not going to be accountability for bias until you reform Section 230. So what we've done is to come to agreement on how you can reshape this and reform it so that you preserve that competitive marketplace so that you don't overreach, but you have that accountability that is necessary. Now, one of the things that we're doing is removing that otherwise objectionable language. That is what people would say, well, they're subjective because they can hide behind this as a shield. Also, what we have done is to specify that that shield applies to platforms that have restricted certain content. So there's a little bit of clarity brought there. Now, we have um, the content moderation. You've got a reasonableness standard that comes into play there, objectively reasonable uh, standard that we would put in place and then defining an information content um, developer and provider so that you know who that standard is going to be applying to. Your content creators, individuals, companies, people that are editorializing. I mean, this is really long overdue for an overhaul. It's been, that's right. 1920 wasn't designed that's for the right. internet. That's right, in the censorship, uh, and then also looking at uh, how you got into those third-party comments, the things that were done there. So it's important to go in and bring this clarity to bear. Well, it, it faces an uphill battle with Democrats, but just how significant is it to have the three co-sponsors of this legislation all coming together in the Republican Senate to say this is where the party is on this particular issue? Well, not only is it the party, but 
And not only is it going to be here in the Senate, this is going to be filed in the House. And also, we think that we can get bipartisan support for this. Everyone agrees that big tech is overreaching. Everyone agrees that big tech brings their bias to bear. That is why you want to have this standard and put it in place, and why you want to be able to say, look, uh, we're going to take out the nebulous language and we're going to bring some specificity to it. If it is promoting self-harm, it is promoting terrorism, uh, then putting those definitions in place, getting that on paper, that's important to do. President Trump tweeted about this just the other day. Yes. And he tweeted directly at Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and said that, you know, he... I'm paraphrasing, but get rid of Section 230. Well, and, and you I know don't you want to get rid of it. Not get rid what of What you want to do is to go in and modify it so that it meets today's marketplace. When these companies were in their infancy, they needed those protections. Now they are using that liability shield kind of hiding behind the skirts, if you will. And what they are doing is saying, oh, you can't come get us. Well, we have decided that we think this is uh, objectionable. So therefore, you put in the specificity. Therefore, you take away that nebulous language. And you begin to say, no, this is going to be a content creator. This is going to be content moderation. This is going to be who has liability protection, and that is what this does. Does the president support this? Uh, we have been in touch with the White House. They have supported doing something with this. We've talked to DOJ about how do we go about this process of bringing this specific language these specific definitions and um, bringing clarity. And just one final uh, topic, just on, on U.S.-China. There's been so much about the supply chains as, yes. as it relates to uh, biotech and pharmaceuticals. Clearly right now with the vaccination uh, push really ramping yeah. up. Uh, you've introduced legislation in the past that would seek to diversify the U.S. supply chain on pharmaceuticals, but is the current U.S. supply chain prepared and ready for the increase in vaccination push that is coming? And what can the United States do to protect its supply chains from international competitors and adversaries like Here China? Here is one of the things I really appreciate about President Trump. When federal agencies were moving too slowly for him, what did he do? He called the private sector to the White House. He said, ventilators, who can do ventilators? Who can do face shields? Who can make PPE? Who can get products to the American consumer? Who can get in here and work on this vaccine? We're going to do Operation Warp Speed. And they've done it. And whether it is antivirals that can be used or whether it is a vaccine, and we've got three that are in clinical trials, what do you have? You have people trying to solve a problem. When federal agencies get out of the way and work with the private sector, when they're saying, we want to solve this problem, the American people are saying, solve this. This is a virus that is not only deadly, it is extremely contagious. We do not have anything in the supply chain that will address it. So companies are saying, we want to bring our production back stateside, especially for these active pharmaceutical ingredients. 
we want to train a workforce. And that is why the SAMC bill and the money that we have there for training this workforce is essential. And then people are saying, hey, wait a minute. I remember when we started this stockpile and it seemed to be going. President Bush had put a lot into it. And then it kind of leveled off, didn't get a lot of attention during the Obama-Biden years. And now it is a priority to make certain that we are ready to protect ourselves and that we are not vulnerable and being held hostage by con countries like China. It's going to be fascinating, and, and regardless of who wins on November 3rd, it will be fascinating to see just the restructuring of those supply chains. Senator Marsha Black. And the restructuring of our relationship with China. That was my conversation from earlier today with Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. I should note that was a conversation that occurred before the Woodward book came out, or the 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 tapes of whatnot from the Woodward book. Coming up, what's on Matt Schlapp and Roger Fisk's radar? I'll tell you what's on my radar as well. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Lots more coming up next, and I should note uh, just more about what Biden said in Michigan. He had said, who's been following this story, he said, uh, essentially, uh, quotes, he knew how deadly it was. He knowingly and willingly lied about it, the threat of it posed for months, end quote. White House pushing back hard very hard against that characterization. We're next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg uh, Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You, remember, you can check out all of our interviews online or on the Bloomberg Terminal or however you consume your Bloomberg information. It's time now for my favorite part of the show, which is what is on your radar. Yesterday, I told you what was on my radar, and I just want to, because it is my show, I want to say that it bears repeating those California wildfires now setting a record for the most blazes, 2.2 million acres burning in California, a really horrific, horrific story. Uh, and of course, uh, we're all thinking about Cal uh, California and hope hoping uh, that 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 ends and ends relatively soon. So that was from yesterday, but I did think that it bears repeating as that becomes more of a a story that we're going to be talking about, unfortunately, uh, for the next couple of weeks. All right. So Roger Fisk is on the line. He's a Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide, and a principal of New Day Strategy. Matt Schlapp is also with us. He is the chairman of the American Conservative Union. I like things in the weeds and obscure. So Roger, uh, I'm going to ask you first. What is on your radar? Okay, I always uh, I always try to come up with something for you. I try to lean yeah. economic, but this week it's definitely not. So okay. I get a lot of these kind of this day in history emails, right? Same, I love and then this. On a, on a good day, I can connect a couple dots amongst them. And on a really good day, I can even connect some of the dots to World War One. So I'm going to see if I can do this here. Maybe you'll enjoy it. Maybe Matt will. We'll see. So on this day in 1839, a guy named John Herschel came up with the technology for photography onto glass plates. 
Okay? okay. So then that was the main way that this country captured images from the Civil War. And this enterprising guy, I don't have the book in front of me, so I don't remember his name, but this enterprising guy went around the South and bought up these glass photos for pennies and amassed a collection of hundreds of thousands of them. He found a way to scrape the silver um, the silver nitrate off it and sell it to chemical companies. Fast forward to World War One, and a defense contractor needs to start making gas masks, similar to the situation we're in now somewhat, and they start scouring the American landscape for the things that can serve as the, the window panes in gas masks. They hear about this old collector, they get in touch with them, and then yada, 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 that's how glass photographs from the Civil War end up being the glass panes in gas masks in World War One, all because of technology that came out on this day in 1839. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of one of my favorite... I thought fav- you might like it. No, because it reminds me of one of my favorite stories, and I, I feel like the... the- the thread for this show has been history because of we had Chairman Petey on, who's the chairman of the National Endowment for Humanities, which at the top of the show earlier on the program. And, um, you know, and I, I am a huge dork when it comes to this stuff. But one of my favorite stories is actually about the invention of radio, which is Reginald Fessenden. He was uh, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He is responsible in the year 1900 for the first transmission of speech by radio. And in 1906, the first two-way radio telegraphic communication. I know this sounds really, really weird, but the reason is is because radio technology was originally created for the military. And a lot of folks in the world thought, why would anyone want to use this other than for war? And he looked at the world and said, why would you want to make war when you can make music? And the first song ever broadcast on radio, ever, 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 was my favorite Christmas song, Oh, holy night. So that's what that made me think of. All right. That's a good radar thing. What nice. is on your radar, Matt Schlapp? It's worth it. uh, Okay, so I'm on the Trump bus tour driving around Iowa, and we just left Mason City, Iowa. And Mason City is interesting. Now, I had no idea you were going to spring this segment on me, so I'm really winging it. No here. worries. No but worries. Mason City, Iowa is the home of the person who wrote The Music Man and also yes. the home of the Frank Lloyd Wright Museum. So uh, in the in smack dab in the middle of the country, you run into the darndest, the most interesting of things, and the town has a lot of really great Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. Who's on the bus with you, Matt? <laughs> Matt Whitaker, the former acting uh, attorney general. Uh, Penny Nance, who runs a great group called Concerned Women for America, and a whole bunch of great uh, members of the Trump campaign. See, I find this remarkable because the you you guys have been crisscrossing the country and whatnot, and, and I know yeah. Democrats have been doing that as well. But you guys have been doing it, you know, much more. I would, I think, objectively say aggressively in, in terms of hit knocking on doors and, and and whatnot. What are you? Iowa is such a crucial Senate race, so let's broaden this conversation out because uh, in, in terms of the Senate race with Joni Ernst up for re-election against a Teresa Greenfield, so goes the Iowa Senate race. So may go control of the Senate. <laughs> It. What what have you been gathering out there on the campaign trail as a as a Republican operative? Well, I've been to a lot of these states, uh, having come back from recently Nevada. Uh, we're in Wisconsin. We're going to be off to Pennsylvania having a CPAC. And I think what's interesting is the the narrative in Washington is that Senate Republicans need to find a way to distance themselves from Trump. Uh, in order to keep the Senate. But what I find on the ground, maybe except for Maine, with Susan Collins 
is exactly the opposite. People like Martha McSally and Joni Ernst, uh, Tom Tillis, uh, Steve Daines, their goal is for Trump to do, first of all, as well as he can in their state. And for them, they won't do, perform as well as Trump, but they want to be in the vicinity of Trump. And if they are, they'll win. So it's interesting that the 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 uh, fortunes of a lot of these Senate candidates are tied to Trump, and they're not actually not overperforming Trump, which is different from what you will learn in the idle gossip around Washington, D.C. cocktail parties, which actually aren't happening anymore because everyone's in their basement still in Washington. <laughs> well, do you, I mean, based upon the polls, I mean, there was an NBC Marist poll that came out. Uh, Pennsylvania has the president trailing by nine percentage points. But give us a little bit of behind the scenes. When you're talking to folks and, and, and you guys are having your strategy sessions, Matt, I mean, where is the path narrowing or do you, or, or how confident are you? Where, where are you right now? Well, when you're on the ground, it's always easier, right, to ascertain yeah. what's happening. And it's hard to see in most of these battleground states uh, where Trump would have lost a lot of votes. It's easier to see that he's unified Republicans, not swamp Republicans, not New York City Republicans, but, you know, Republicans in these battleground states. They're very unified, more unified than they were when I was working for President Bush uh, in the early 2000s. And he gets a lot more crossover. You know, you go to these Trump events, there's, there's a significant number of Democrats, a lot of diverse people, and people that have the names on the fronts of their shirts. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a new phenomenon in Republican politics. I'd say when it comes to the polls, Kevin, and you, you study these yeah. polls. For instance, there was a Marquette University poll that just came out of Wisconsin that shows Biden up four. Well, of course, the Marquette University poll has been wildly uh, out of whack with reality. When I see Trump down five points or less in a lot of these polls that have underperformed with Republican voters, um, I feel pretty good about our chances. And I, and I know that uh, when you talk to people on the ground in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, they feel like there's more enthusiasm, more volunteers. Uh, you know, it's just mm -hmm. they don't want to talk to pollsters. And I think it's going to be yeah. hard for a lot of these polling firms to pick it up. All right. So I want to thank Matt. I want to thank Roger. Here's what's on my radar. Uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal today. When COVID-19 struck, the U.S. was already in the grip of an expanding drug overdose crisis. It has only gotten worse since then. That's the lead in the journal on the nation's opioid crisis. We don't have the data for this year, but last year there was a likely record number of deadly overdoses, just overdoses in the U.S. with more than 72,000 people who died. Uh, and this is according to federal projections. And Obviously, as a result of the uh, lockdowns and, and folks living uh, in in um, in you know isolation, this has been you know exacerbated uh, this year alone. So unfortunately, it's a it's a very grim picture. But we could actually, folks, be on record to set another record as it relates to the opioid crisis. This should be a unifying issue. Hopefully, it will become one. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for spending time with me and listening. I'll check in with you tomorrow on Bloomberg 99.1. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.